0: Luke 17 verse 20. Now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. So this is Luke chapter chapter 17 verse 20 and 21. So you see that, that he is with his disciples, but some, some Pharisees come to him, and they start questioning him. So remember where Jesus is at this time. Jesus is, is, uh, has left Jerusalem, and he, he's gone to Ephraim, and there in Ephraim he's starting to move his way back for his final week, and here some Pharisees confront him, so he's not in Jerusalem, and they, they ask him when the kingdom of God was coming. So the Pharisees asked him, when is the kingdom of God coming? It's a fair question. But remember, since the time of the unpardonable sin, he no longer speaks to others clearly. He only speaks to his disciples clearly. And so he's not going to give them a very clear answer here. He, says he, he said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is. Or, there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. So what happened was when Jesus came onto this earth, had they received Jesus as Messiah, he still would have had to die, he would have been put to death by the Romans, and then he would have risen and reestablished the messianic kingdom. Because they did not receive him, we... Then a new generation has started, and this is the Church Age, and we are still living in the Church Age. So the Church Age is 2,014 years plus, however much, that we've been living in the Church Age. This is what the Scriptures refer to as the Mystery Kingdom. And the Scriptures itself, the New Testament itself, refers to this age that we're living in as the Mystery Kingdom. Meaning that an age that was not talked about in the Old Testament because the intent was for them to receive Jesus. But we are living now in this church age, so they said, when is the kingdom of God coming? And he says, it's here. You are living in the church age. This has already been established, because it was defined back at the time of the unpardonable sin. But now if we look in verse 22 of the same chapter, it, says, it starts out, he says to his disciples, so now he moves away from the Pharisees, this is Luke chapter 17, verse 22, and he's going to start to speak directly with his disciples. So the direct word now is, to his disciples. Now he's going to speak more clearly, because it's only to his disciples. He, he, he said to his disciples, the days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. They will say to you, look there, look here. Do not go away and do not run after them. For just like the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Okay, so now he's with his disciples and he's beginning to tell them, this is where we get our insight as to what's coming. It's from these conversations that Jesus had with his disciples that we understand what the future holds for us. Everybody wants to know the future, right? Here, Jesus is telling us what the future holds. He said, The days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, in verse 22, and you will not see it. Meaning that you see me now... (coughs) but there's going to come a point where you're not going to see me anymore and you're going to long for these days where where I'm in your midst. He says, they will say to you, look here, look look there, look here. Do not go away and do not run after that. He says that many will say to you, a new Messiah has risen. Don't go there. Don't believe it. They're going to say, oh, Jesus is over there. Oh, Jesus is over here. He says, once I've risen from the dead, you're going to know when I come back again. When the second coming of Christ comes, he says it's going to be like lightning shining across the sky. He's going to come, and, it, and the scriptures even say it. it, it he says that it's going to come, he's going to come riding on the clouds, it's described in another p- portion of scripture. Every person will see his second coming. The first coming, he came really quietly, a babe. He was born, and he was placed in a manger, and only a few people who understood the times well, naming the wise men, really understood that he was coming because they, they, were, they were in, in Babylon, which is, which is where Daniel used to be, and that's where Daniel had written the pattern of when he was coming. And so they knew when to come. But he says, next time. The Son of Man is going to come, and everyone is going to be able to see him. I remember once uh, uh, there was somebody standing by the, the side of the road, but by, by the sidewalk at the university, and they had a, a sign on the front and on the back talking about how Jesus was coming. Get ready! And and uh, but he had a specific date on there, and this was this was a long time ago. I think his date was like like 1989, and and i I talked to him, and I stopped, and I talked to him, I said, "You know when Jesus comes, we're all going to know it, but it says, no man knows the day or the hour and and uh but he was utterly convinced that Jesus was coming on that particular day, so he was warning people and I, and I, I thought that's that's very nice of you to do that but when he <laughs> when he comes, we are all going to see him riding on the clouds, and, and he's going to come in, and it, you're just going to see him." So he says, don't let people alarm you. And you might hear this sometimes: "Oh, Jesus is going to show up at this place." Well, Jesus, you know, in, if it's really His second coming, we're all going to know it. He say, uh, "Do you have to be in Jerusalem?" No, you don't have to be in Jerusalem. We are all going to know when His second coming occurs. That's what he tells us. Had it not been for this, we wouldn't know. You think that hey, maybe you you should go and wait in Jerusalem so you're there at His coming. No, you're going to see it. Isn't that comforting? You could be right here, you could be in Houston, you could be, you could be in Alaska, of all places. <laughs> you're going you're gonna to see him coming. And, and uh, then he says, he says, do not run after them. For just like the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky and shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So, so, so he, here he, he starts to point something out. He's saying to them, but before any of this can take place, he's saying to his disciples, I'm going to have to suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. This generation is not a, ever a reference when Jesus speaks about it to humankind in general. It was to that generation that he was alive with at that time. He said that he was going to be rejected, I'm going to to suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Verse 26. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling. They were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and and whose goods are in the house must not go down to get them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife, Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Okay, so so Jesus begins to give us more clarity here. He says that his second coming, so we know what's going to come just before his appearance of his second coming. Seven years before his second coming, the tribulation will hit. The tribulation will hit on the world. So, Jesus died on the cross, we are living in the church age, In this church age will continue throughout the seven-year tribulation. Once the seven-year tribulation ends, Jesus' second coming will will take place. Just before the tribulation, the rapture will occur. Now, there is some differences on this. Some people think the rapture occurs after the tribulation. Some people think the rapture occurs right in the middle of the tribulation. Some people think the rapture occurs after the sixth seal in the book of Revelation is opened. Some people think it's right at the beginning of the tribulation. I would say that most scholars today, not all, certainly not all, but most, I would say, the majority is that the tribulation will occur just before the tribulation, the, 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 uh, 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 the, the taking of the saints. So, so the, this, this term of, of when Jesus removes those who believe in him, the rapture. This term rapture is not a scriptural term, it's a church term that this taking of the saints from the earth will occur just before the beginning of the the tribulation period. This tribulation is going to come on earth, Jesus is telling us, and this is what the people will be doing. Just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating. They were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. So think about what's going to happen. What's going to happen is the tribulation is going to hit and all over the earth there is going to be turmoil. Now you can speak to people in different parts of the world. For example, you speak to Koreans and and those who lived... Through the Korean War, we'll say, you know, that was the tribulation. There have been real times of upheaval, but not all over the world has upheaval occurred. There is going to come a point when that happens. And it says, just before that happens, people are going to be marrying, they're going to be buying, they're going to be selling. And what's interesting about that is, there is nothing wrong with marrying, or buying, or selling, nothing wrong with any of that. That's fine planting. So people are going to be going out their normal lives and doing all the normal things people are going to be doing when, 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 uh, uh, just, just before the, this, this uh, time comes. There's nothing wrong with that. All of this is going to take place. But you see, life has a way of creeping up on us. And it says in, in verse, in verse uh, 30, it will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day... The one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. So what Jesus is speaking about here is he's speaking about the end times. The things are going to take place. But what I want to bring this back to is because we're not living in the days of the tribulation yet. The rapture might occur. Let's read about the types of things that that take place in the rapture. Jesus touches on that as well. He says in verse 34, he says, I tell you on that night. So in other words, just before the rapture occurs, just before the tribulation occurs, on that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other will be left. There will be two women grinding at, at the same place. One will be taken, the other will be left. Uh, Some manuscripts insert verse 36. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken. The other will be left. And answering, they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the body is, there the vultures will be gathered. So he gives them a picture of the rapture. You're going to have a husband and wife in bed. One of them saved, the other one not. Two people in a bed. Boom. One is taken, the other is left. Two women working together grinding at the mill. Boom! One is taken, the other is left. You see this picture of what we term the rapture. You say, "Oh, how can this be? Uh, because he's God. Because he can do what he wants. Because he can he can speak and the universe is created. So he can do that. Believers will be taken." So he gives us this picture. But what I want to go back to here is I want to say, okay, well what does this mean for me today? So look look at, look at this, this verse 33. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. Jesus speaks the same verse in, in several passages in the Scriptures. And he says in one case, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life For my sake and the sake of the gospel, we'll save it. Same sort of verse here. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Fascinating verse. If I try to do things that are going to keep me comfortable and protect me, I'm going to lose my life. But if I'm willing to lose my life, I will preserve it. So, obviously, what he's talking about is the life eternal. That we can keep it for life eternal. And they weren't doing anything particularly wrong in the last days. They were just getting married. Nothing wrong with that. They were buying. Nothing wrong with that. They were selling. Nothing wrong with that. They were planting. Normal things. And then it hit. You know, as you think about it, life has a way of just overtaking us. Little by little we 're doing our own thing, and we we have good intentions. You no, know, we just just uh figured well, you know i I, I went to this this uh, conference and I got really excited for the Lord, really passionate and excited for the Lord and then, lo and behold, I just got caught in the daily grind. I was really intent on on serving God and doing many great things but but uh, life just kind of caught up with me. And then I figured, well, what I'll do is I'll, once I get done with college, then I'll really plug in. Because then I'll have a lot more time. Right? I have a lot more time after college. And, and uh, all sorts of time on your hands after college, right? <coughs> Nothing really to do. Right? As soon as college is over, this, this, all this free time, because you don't have exams. And we know that college students work harder than anyone else in the world. We know that. So so when college is over, then I'll really begin to plug in. And then what happens? All of a sudden you get a job and you're like, Wow, I gotta travel, I gotta do this, I got all these things to do. So maybe maybe what I should do is I should uh, uh, wait till I'm established in my job. I'll wait till I'm established. So I'm an assistant professor. Wait till wait till I have tenure. You know, once I have tenure, then I'm good to go. Then I'm set. The problem is you get tenure and things don't necessarily lighten up. You know, there's lo- no lightening up just because there, there's tenure. And then there's all these other activities. And then, well, wait till I become a full professor. And it's, wait till I retire. When I retire, then I'll have a lot of time. The problem is when you retire, there's a lot of times not the strength anymore. And you're like, oh, I don't have the strength to go out and do these things. I mean, let somebody else go to the mission field. Life has a way of just slowly creeping up on you. Not necessarily being evil and bad, not necessarily doing the wrong thing. You're just, just buying and selling and marrying and being given in marriage and nothing particularly wrong with that. But without a concerted conscious effort that I will serve the Lord, I will give my life for Him, the Bible says, you're going to lose it. You're going to lose your life if you don't give your life for him. I met a guy just, just this past week. And I saw him. And I haven't seen him for several months. And, and he used to come to the class. And I said, so, so what's happening? He says, well... Um, you know, and he was real active in, 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 in one of the campus ministries. He said, well, I, I, w- I was at a, a conference and I had a revelation. I said, oh, you had a revelation. What was your revelation? He says that I realized that I really didn't believe any of this stuff. I said, oh... Okay, I'm glad you came to that revelation. Because in in Charles Spurgeon's book, he talks about ministers. He's teaching young ministers. And he says the first thing, chapter 1 is, make sure you're saved. Make sure you really believe this. Or what's going to happen is, you're going to be speaking from the Word of God. People are going to get saved. And you're not even going to know what they're talking about. You're going to be able to speak about it, but you don't know what's happening in their heart. And I said, yeah, it's really important to be saved. I said, I said and then, it, then I said, now what? He says, well, I'm just going to see where life takes me. And then we talked for a while, and, I, and then he said, I think I'm just going to see where life takes me. I said, you know, this is the second time you've said that. You're going to see where life takes you. Let me prophesy over you. You will have a couple of failed marriages and a string of hurting children. And you will look back in 20 or 30 years and you'll say, my goodness, look where life has taken me. Life has a slow way of just coming up on you. And this is what Jesus says. He says You just go about your own business. But when you forget about God and what He wants to do, there are real problems that are going to come in. Now, there is suffering for everyone in life. Jesus, in fact, remember he said, I'm going to be rejected and I'm going to be persecuted by this generation. So believers will undergo suffering, but it's a very different type of suffering. Throughout the suffering, there's this eternal hope. It's not just this, oh, life is terrible. There's just a a very different sort of view in the suffering that takes place. So let's look, for example, in James chapter 1, the book of James. So if you if you can find Hebrews, so turn over several pages and after Luke and you'll find Hebrews, and then after that you'll find James. We're going to look in James chapter one. James chapter one, reading from verse two. James, it, it's kind of near the end of the Bible, kind of near the end. Um, if you if you're at Revelation, the last book, turn a few books back and you'll see it. James chapter one, reading from verse two. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So he says, Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. So he doesn't say, If you encounter various trials, consider it all joy. He said, When you encounter it, it's going to happen. There's going to be pains in life, even to the believer. He's writing to believers. And he says, consider it joy, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So when our faith is tested, it produces endurance in our lives. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be may be perfect, lacking in nothing. So look at what he says here. To the believer, there will be sufferings, there will be trials. But it perfects us, it makes us better. You talk to any believer who has gone through hardship, not in the midst of the hardship, maybe not right after the hardship, but sometime later, they will talk about the proving that occurred in them. As a result of that hardship, the maturing of their faith that occurred throughout that hardship. Very little maturing in faith takes place in times where we're trial free. Very little maturing. You think that, oh, I'm ecstatic, I'm excited about the Lord, now's the best time to grow. It doesn't happen that way. It's the trials that cause us to grow all the more. Isn't that interesting? The trials cause us to grow. That is totally different than the trials that take place without the hope of Jesus Christ. It is like marrying and being given in marriage and then all of a sudden, everything comes upon you. And it is, this, it is a destruction of life rather than a preservation of life. Once we are filled with the power of Jesus Christ, He says, He who gives His life for me will save it, Jesus said. So how do we dedicate our life to Him? Because remember, what happens is, you can have all these great intentions. Yeah, I'm going to serve the Lord. And then it just waits and waits and waits. It just never really happens. Let me give you some thoughts on this. To have, if you're a believer, if you're an unbeliever, the first step is you've got to be saved. You, say, Jesus, forgive me for my sins and come into my life. Ask Him to forgive you and ask Him to come into your life. And if there's a problem, you read the New Testament twice. On, sometime before you finish the second time through, you will get saved. It is an amazing book. That doesn't mean that you just skip around everywhere. You start in Matthew. That's the beginning of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 is right at the beginning. And... You start right there, and you start reading right through till you finish the book of Revelation. And then you start again. Sometime through, either the first pass or the second pass, you will be saved. It is an amazing book. If you read it, pick up where you left off the day before. If you're a believer in Christ, let me give you a few pointers on how you can make sure that life doesn't creep up on you before you've had a chance to really serve Him. And that is to pick up a ministry that depends on you. In the sense that if you don't show up to that ministry, something really bad happens. It doesn't doesn't work. So in other words, let let me talk about this. If you say, I think I'll pick up chairs from this class on Sundays after class and help stack them in the back. That is a great thing to do. But whether you show up or not to pick up the chairs... There's a lot of other people who are going to pick up chairs, and they're not even going to notice you're not picking them up. Now, God will notice, but no one else is going to notice. But if you have a ministry where, say, you're teaching in one of the kids' classrooms, or one of the youth class- classrooms, and you're teaching Bible study in there, and you don't show up, somebody's really going to miss you. They're going to, you know, there's going to be a bunch of kids in there, and they say, what are we doing here? Where's the teacher?" You want to pick up a ministry where you are a vital part of that ministry. A vital part of that ministry. Say, well, I don't know what my gifts are. Well, you will never know sitting around. You will only know by trying. Now, some people's gifts are hospitality. And you can see it. They'll get in a kitchen and they will serve and and it doesn't bother them. It's not like, ah, getting worn out every week. Not that it's not tiring. But... It's something you enjoy doing. And if your enjoyment, if your heart isn't there, try something else. Try try some other ministry where your heart is there. Again, it doesn't mean that it's not, it doesn't tax you, it doesn't mean that it doesn't make you tired, but it's something where you realize that, hey, you're pretty good at this, and I enjoy doing this. And you, you only find these things by trying them. Try them for a few weeks or a few months and see and then God opens up the opportunity. Maybe you have the gift of teaching. So what you do is you start in a little small group Bible study. And, and you get in a Bible study and you start teaching in just a small group. And see if people are connecting. If people are just falling asleep all the time, then, you know, it's a sign. <laughs> and the sign is, you put people asleep. <laughs> if you think you have the gift of singing, and people don't want to hear you sing, It's a sign. So, so it helps you to know this. If you're in one of these, if you're working with the youth, with the high schoolers, and they really enjoy you, and you enjoy them, that's a sign that, hey, you may be gifted in working in youth ministry. You know, I know one student from this class, he doesn't come to this class anymore because he's so busy working with the youth in the church. He's doing exactly what he ought to do. And I I saw him when he was, I think he was just a freshman, and he got so excited about working with them that, that, you know, I got him working with the youth ministry. He went to the youth lock-in. That's where they come to the church for a Friday night, and you get locked in with a bunch of middle schoolers overnight. I mean, that—that that is terrifying to me. (laughs) And and so he stayed way up late into the night with these kids. And I saw him coming back to campus on Saturday morning after being up all night with these kids. And I said, how was it? he said, it was great. It was great. And I thought, that's perfect. That is perfect. This is where your ministry is. And the guy liked it so much, he went from being pre-med to, to wanting to go into youth ministry. That is a blessing if you can couple your area of gifting with your career. It makes your career a lot more fun. It really does. I would bring, when my kids were little, I'd, I'd bring them into the nursery. And I'd see these women in the nursery. And, and uh, they were there every week with a smile. And uh, I said, do you like this? Oh, we love taking care of kids. I said, what about the part where you've got to change other people's children's diapers. They said, "Oh, it's part of the job." It didn't even faze them. I mean, it was like, "Oh yeah, that's just, a, just that's part of it. That's part of it. You know, you just do it." It didn't even bother them. So when a kid was obviously stinky, they just, without even thinking about it, they were changing a diaper, and it wasn't like, "Oh, oh no." It, it wasn't like that. You see where their gifting is. You've got to have a place of ministry. In that, you preserve your life. Jesus said, if you, if, if you try to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you give your life, you will preserve it. It is in this that comes life. What keeps you from becoming old an old sourpuss? You know, just always upset about life and upset about everything and spitting and cursing about everything in life. What keeps you? From doing that because the world is full of people like that. It is by giving of your life. Look at Mother Teresa. It didn't bother her that she was pouring out her life for other people. She never felt like, well, when is somebody going to minister to me? Today is my day, you know. No, Mother Teresa didn't do that. She was just always pouring out herself for other people. When you pour out yourself in your gift of ministry, it preserves your life. You have so much more life in you, when you give of yourself for others. This comes by having a ministry. It's not like, well, one day God will show to me my ministry. No, He won't. You be actively serving. Remember what the lepers did? Jesus said, go and show yourself to the priest." On their way to the priest, they became healed. What He told Israel, He said, go and stand in the Jordan and see what happens. So He went and He stood in the Jordan They stood in the Jordan, and the Jordan dried up. The the Red Sea was something else. Moses had to raise his hand. I'm talking about when they came across the Jordan. So you see that it's through stepping out that we find our place. And if you don't have a place, you must commit to get a place of active service and ministry, even if you're a busy student have a place of active ministry. That might be coming in and being uh, a greeter on Sundays. Or that could come, not through the church, it might come through one of the campus groups where it depends on you. If you don't set up for the large group meeting, it doesn't get set up. It depends on you. Or you're teaching a Bible study. If you're not there teaching, there's not going to be anybody there to teach it. It depends on you. And what that does is it brings you beyond yourself. Because there's some weeks where you're going to feel physically really wiped out. But it's like going to a job. You've got to do this. And it's better than a job. It's service to my Lord. When when I was an assistant professor, I was looking for a ministry. I really wanted to do a ministry. And I started prison ministry uh, uh, in my first year. I started prison ministry. And uh, um, I went in with some... some uh, guys who run a prison ministry and learned from them how to do this. And I'd go in and I'd go in with other guys because it was always safer to go in the institution with some other people around me. But sometimes they wouldn't show up. And I'd go in alone. And I'd go in and I'd walk across the yard and people would say things and I'd go into the unit and they'd get a room and they'd come out of their cells and they'd come into the, into the room and we'd have Bible study. And there was a time there where I had an ulcer and it was terribly painful. And I remember trying to stand there and teach the Word of God with my stomach really hurting. And I was tired, and I had this also. but this was service to my Lord. And I almost felt, Lord, it is refreshing to give myself for You. Just as it says of the disciples, they counted themselves worthy that they could suffer in His name. They were excited about the fact that they were considered worthy to suffer for His name. And this is the way I felt. And then I remember, particularly on these nights, I'd get out of there and I'd really want to get home. And in the institution, you, you have the, the, these, uh, um, these walkways, and the walkways have multiple doors, and never can two doors be open at the same time. It can't happen. So, so you'd go through one door, and it would close behind you, and then you're waiting for somebody to come and open the next door. And guess what would happen on those nights when the ulcer was the worst? The person would forget to show up to open the next door. Because I was in the unit and there were these double doors so I had to go into this no man's land area and then I'd have to go back to the first door and bang on it, try to get the guy's attention, say, would you radio the guy to open the other door? Oh, you're still there? Okay. And you know, and, and so then you wait. And then after you do that, then you go to the next one and that's got double doors too. So so the, this transition in and out always took longer on the nights when the ulcer was particularly bad. But this is just the way it is serving the Lord. This is what preserves a life. This is what preserves your life. Look for a ministry and serve faithfully in it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. And I pray, Lord, if there be people here that do not know You, that do not know Jesus Christ, Father, I pray that You would open up their hearts, that they would receive You. And Father, that they would begin to read the New Testament, picking up each day where they left off the day before, and that You would begin to speak to their hearts and save their souls, O God, I pray. And Father, for the believers here, that You would move them into a place of active ministry, Father, work in their lives. Father, that they would experience the life that comes, the preservation of life that comes, by giving up their lives for You. Bless them richly in the name of Jesus. Amen.